0: This morning, we're looking at uh, what it means to be a, a disciple, specifically when it comes to reading the word of God. We've been looking at um, church family. Um, we're going to look at a mission and reading the Bible. Today, specifically, it's understanding the Bible. Because when Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, he said to do what? He said to teach them to teach them all that I have observed. So so we're making disciples, but we're also teaching them. And if we don't have the word of God, then we don't have anything to teach with, right? This is our, our material because God has has spoken to us. So when we open up God's word today, um, you know, my prayer is like, you know, I'm looking at last week, this week, and next week, I almost feel like we're uh, drinking water out of a fire hydrant with a straw, you know, trying to get it all in. Um, but we're gonna do the best that we can. And, uh, and, and by the way, if you want to email me, I'll email you these notes, which are more detailed than the notes that I would uh, give up here. But but if you write, I, I think that it might do you well, because sometimes writing helps us to remember things. Um, I, I want to emphasize getting together in life groups, because when we are discipled, we, we grow together. And, and God wants us to get into places where we're uncomfortable sometimes, sometimes. Um, I really like the fact that uh, there are times that God makes us uncomfortable, but He also wants us to become uncomfortable on our own. Uh, it's it's interesting that as a as a coach, you you want athletes that are are making it hard for themselves. Uh, why? Because that when they get into situations where they're able to do things and it gets hard, they're already used to it. So I, I pray for us that when we get into life groups. It's not just trying to be a better disciple, not just trying to be a better Christian, but it's training. As I said last week, um, a a marathon runner who's in great shape can run three miles exerting very minimal effort. And if I tried to run three miles, I would would collapse. You know, I'd get like the the stitch in my side. I would get leg cramps and, you know, my, my lungs would feel like they're exploding. And I could try harder than the marathon runner. But I'm not gonna beat the marathon runner because the marathon runner isn't trying, he's trained. And because he's trained over time, when the race comes, he's ready. And so um, it's important when we get into being disciples, God doesn't want us to train alone. Uh, last week, we looked at why we read the word of God. Uh, God's word is perfect. It, it changes us. It teaches us uh, what godly fear is. Um, God's word is sweet. It convicts us of sin. And then mostly to know jesus remember jesus said you search the scriptures for in them you think you have life but it is these that testify of me so why do i read the bible if it's not to know the author right because i i want to read the bible so that i could know more of jesus and then to be equipped for what god calls me to and so a big part of us studying like this is to uh, be equipped so this morning when we look at Uh, the Bible. Uh, We we looked at last week why reading the Bible, and and this week it's is the Bible trustworthy and and how to read the Bible. Um, Last night I had a conversation with my daughter Ellie and Abby before they were going to bed. Um, Ellie just turned uh, nine and Abby just turned seven. So you know they get the little sheets uh, from Sunday school and we're going through answers in Genesis, great curriculum. And so one of the questions, the discussion question at the end of it was this, if you talk to one of your friends and your friend said, it's good for you that you believe in God and it's good for you that you read the Bible, but that's, that's for you, it's not for me, what would you say? So this is great to ask a nine-year-old, like what would you say to ask a seven-year-old? Um, Abby, <laughs> Abby was funny. She said, I would just say because the Bible says, and we all know the Bible's true. And then Ellie said, no, you can't say that because not everyone believes that. And, and so Ellie said, dad, it would be a circle. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I would say I believe in the Bible and that the Bible's true and the Bible says it. But then then my friend would say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. And my friend would say, why do you believe in the Bible? Or why do you believe in God? And I would say, well, because God's word is true. And she goes, it would be kind of a circle. We'd go back and forth. And it was just a great discussion where we started talking about relativism and truth to, you know, to a nine-year-old. And I said, Um, I asked Ellie, have you ever heard of the law of gravity? And she goes, yeah. I said, what is that? And she knew what it was. I said, if I threw a feather out, what would happen? She said, eventually it would fall. If I threw a weight out, it would fall. I said, yeah, that's gravity. I said, what if someone stood on top of a building and said, I don't believe in gravity? You know, that's for you. If you want to believe in gravity, you believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. I said, what would happen if they jumped off a building? And she said, they would fall. I said, that's right one of the things that you could say is that it, if something is true, even if you don't believe it, it's still true. And and ask your friend, is it possible that what I believe is true? And they would say, maybe it's possible. And then say, if it's possible, then shouldn't you research to find out if it's true? Because if it is true, then, then it's not just good for me, because it's bad for you that you don't believe it. And so we had this discussion, and, and uh, I think that at a young age... it it's important that my my kids know that the Bible is trustworthy. Like, how do you know? And I just started asking her questions. Like, how do you know that mom and dad are right? She goes, well, you guys are pretty smart. I said, yeah, but there's smarter people than us that believe other things. And she was like, well, you know, I I know that I, I trust you because I, you love me. I said, yeah, there's other parents that love their kids and they teach them other things. So why? And I was just trying to get her to, to think and to reason. So this morning, um, I, I want to begin with going through why we can trust the Bible, because you know, in the next week we're going to look at how the Bible's organized and those things. But, but this is all important. And if you're if you're not sure, if you're thinking, "Man, the Bible is an ancient book, and there's some good things in there," and but I'm not sure, like it's really trustworthy, like God's word. This is the perfect Sunday for you to be here. And if you've had a discussion with someone or you know someone that, that thinks like the Bible might be full of myths or it's an ancient book, it's a great Sunday for you to be here because um, it equips us. Um, I'm going to begin with uh, the, I'm just going to begin with the acronym MAPS. Can I trust the Bible? M-A-P-S. And, and the first thing, the letter M, it, it stands for Manuscripts. And uh, if, you, if you already know this, then, then I just hope, then pray that it strengthens your faith somewhat as you're, you're going through this uh, again this morning. Um, I'll get back to these. It's manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, and statistics. So we're going to look at some of these reasons why we could trust the Bible, beginning with manuscripts. Uh, this is my friend Jeff. Uh, we went to Israel. Um, this is in 2006, maybe 2008, uh, that cave that you see is, is a cave in a place called Qumran. And uh, what happened at that cave was was really fascinating. In 1947, there was a shepherd boy um, threw a rock into the cave. So you, you can just imagine, I would do the same thing as a kid. You know, you're down there and you throw something into that hole. And so they're throwing rocks. They're trying to make it into that hole in that cave. And when they throw something in there, they hear a, a sound of like shattering, like hey what's in there and they throw another rock and they start to hear this so they climb up into the cave and they found they found these jars and inside of the jars are these ancient scrolls so they're looking at the scrolls they came back uh, home you know told his dad hey i found these eventually they they his dad felt like hey this is going to be something valuable probably the greatest archaeological find maybe if you consider biblical Uh, proof and evidence. This is what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. this is in the Dead Sea area. This is in a place called Qumran. And let me explain why it's important. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of the original. Now, before Xerox, you know, the kids, it's funny, they don't know what Xerox means anymore. Like, (laughs) what's a Xerox or or dittos? What are dittos? You know, they know computers, they know digital things. But before photocopying and, and Xerox and all of those things, even before the Gutenberg printing press, which was developed and invented so that we could reprint the Bible, uh scribes would handwrite not word for word, but letter for letter the Bible. They were so trained that as they would uh transcribe in like for example, Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God, they wouldn't write in in the the beginning, beginning. They would have to go letter by letter. It, you know, I, I, N, N, T, T, H, H, E. Now, I, that's a long illustration, but I'm just kidding. The whole Bible, they're, they're, they're taking whatever it is that they're reading, and they're going letter by letter. By the way, there were no spaces in between. So that all of the words would come like side by side without any spaces. And after they finished one book of the Bible, for example, the book of Genesis, they would stop, they would count the number of letters in it to make sure it matched the original. Then they would count from the beginning to the middle and make sure that the middle letter was the same middle letter as it was in the original. And if there was one single error, they would have to destroy the copy. There was no erasing because they held this as God's word, and they understood the value of God's word. They wanted to make sure that they preserved it, so they would destroy the original, or I mean the copy, and they would start all over from scratch. So these manuscripts, it would be like if I were to write a letter to Rick, and, and let's say that I, I, I sent a, a messenger, here, deliver this letter to Rick, and he takes this letter to Rick, and we're living in, you know, 500 BC, we're living in ancient Israel, But I wanted to verify that when he got that letter, he could prove that it's an original. Before I sent it off, I made a copy. And let's just say that I wanted to send that copy to someone else. I would have a scribe copy it and then send it to another person and then take another copy and send it to another person. That way, if Rick says, this is what Matt wrote to me and someone said, I don't believe you, then they could look at the other verified handwritten copies and say, it matches Yes, it truly, that, that's authenticated. So let me ask you, how many manuscripts would it take to authenticate an original? Like letter for letter, would you say, okay, there's a handwritten copy. Yeah, it matches. It is an original. I mean, it really is authentic. What would you say? One copy? Maybe two copies? All right, maybe, maybe three copies is going to extreme. Homer's Iliad, which is um, literature, the highest number of manuscripts outside of the Bible for ancient literature that's comparable. There are 643 copies, handwritten copies of Homer's Iliad. So when we read Homer's Iliad, we think, okay, we really have this story that was written by this guy named Homer. And we, we know that. We have 643 copies of it and they match. Shakespeare's plays, the greatest number of any of his plays, 14, okay? So some of the plays less than 14, but the greatest number, I can't remember which play was, 14 copies. Plato, we have Plato's writings. In fact, we study them in in philosophy. You know how many manuscripts we have of Plato? Eight, eight manuscripts from this incredible philosopher named Plato, right? Uh, Aristotle, less than 10. Of the New Testament alone, either in full or in part, How many copies do you think there are? A lot. lot. 24,000 copies of the New Testament alone. So you can imagine that, you know, people say, oh, the Bible that we have, I'm not sure if it's real. Did you know that for the Book of Mormon, there's one copy? One single copy written in a heavenly language that only Joseph Smith could translate. And he translated it saying, this is in the heavenly language. And no one can check it. But our Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. Those are known languages. We could verify it. And we could find copies in different places that are hundreds of years apart. And they, they match each other. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were an incredible find. These are That's a picture, it's a dark picture of the jars that are there. And uh, the scrolls that were in there. Inside of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they found the entire book of Isaiah, 26 feet long and handwritten copies that were were hidden by a, a group of people called the Essenes and it, just an amazing find in 1947 these scrolls were placed in there 2000 years ago so when they dated the scrolls and and they have um estimations of when the dead sea scrolls were written they find that the dead sea scrolls were dated before the time of Christ Okay, this is before Jesus's birth. Why is that significant? Because the book of Isaiah predicts Jesus's birth. And it predicts some specific things about how he would be born and where he would be born. And I just want you to think of this because people before the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were saying, oh, the manuscripts, those are, those are copies after Jesus was born. They started writing, you know, they started backlogging these, backdating these prophecies to say that Jesus was the fulfillment But let me explain that for the Dead Sea Scrolls, the pottery that housed the manuscripts was dated before Christ. The weave and the pattern of the manuscript cloth was dated before Christ. The form of the characters was in a writing that they used to use before Christ. The spelling of the common words were in common spellings before the time of Christ. And the coins that were found alongside of the manuscripts were coins that were used before the time of Christ. So we have all of these Old Testament books and we realize that when Jesus came, he came to fulfill prophecy. And didn't God do an amazing thing that by preserving that for us today? So that when we see it and archaeologists archeolo- dig it up, we realize, hey, it really is um, God's word. Now, the A in maps is archaeology. I'm going to read this to you uh, by one of the greatest uh, archaeologists um, in history. Wrote this. He wrote that it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form the vast mosaic of the Bible. Um, It almost incredibly... uh, incredibly depicts a correct historical memory. So when archaeologists look for where to dig, where do they look? They read the Bible and they say, oh, this is where I should dig because the Bible said that it was here. And most of our archaeological discoveries in the Middle East around ancient Israel happened because they started digging in the place that they said that the Bible said this over thousands of years and layers. And they would just keep digging and digging You know, it's been said before that anytime you turn over a shovel, you know, in in Israel, you prove that the Bible's true. You know, you're in your backyard. Oh, the Bible's true. Look, I just found something. You know, all of these uh, incredible um, 25,000 archaeological discoveries, everything from Pilate's stone to David's description as king. To Caiaphas's bones, to Hezekiah's tunnel, to the pool of Siloam in 2005, uh, to the synagogue in Capernaum where up to that point they didn't believe that Jesus was really in Capernaum. Then they found the synagogue that he was in. I mean, not one piece of evidence is found to support, um, the, like for example, the Book of Mormon. Not one single archaeological dig has supported that. 25,000 have supported the Bible. Um, just absolutely incredible. I'm going to show you one more uh, about this. This is um, called the Mkmash Gorge. Uh, the there was an English officer in a, a war that was actually there, and his troops were coming up against some other troops, and, and they couldn't find where the stronghold was, and they're trying to figure out like how do we how do we get to them because you know they have this strength and they're in this stronghold. Well, anyway, in the place that they were, uh, Mkmash. Um, one of the, one of the people that came with reconnaissance, they, they gave the name of actually the hills that were there on either side. Now this English Bible student who was a, a uh, you know, an officer, he read the Bible and he thought, man, I, have I recognize that somewhere. I recognize those names and he recognized them from first Samuel chapter 14. Cause in first Samuel chapter 14, you'll find that Jonathan climbs up to where the enemy stronghold is, and he and his servant are able to catch them by surprise. And so he's thinking, I know that it's there. And he goes to the general and he tells the general, hey, this is, this is where we can go. Documented battle uh, with England, you know, in, in the midst of it that took over another army because this guy knew his Bible. He knew where this place was. He read about how Jonathan climbed up and took that spot and said, hey, if we climb up instead of going through the gorge, because you could see how narrow the gorge is and you couldn't get through there. But if we climbed up some other way, we would be able to, to come upon them. And so it, it shows that the Bible is true. The P, M-A-P-S, the P stands for prophecy. Prophecy. If you take just eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament, the odds would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one in that. Well, I don't know what that is. What number is that? A googolion or something like that? Um, of the 26 other religious books that claim divine inspiration, whether it would be the Quran or, you know, other, other books, 26 Religious books that are books for different main religions in the world claim that divine authorship um, has been given. Zero. None of them contain fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is filled with hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. In fact, in the Old Testament, one in every four verses was prophetic at the time it was written. We look at it as history but when it was written, 25% at least was prophecy at the time that it was written. So just imagine this. And, and you guys, I, I really hope and pray that it just, you just try to wrap your mind around it. To hold on to the faith that we have that it's not a stupid faith. It is faith. But I'll tell you what, God has given us so much evidence that, that the word of God is sure. And, and it's something that we could hold on to. Not vague generalities like Nostradamus or, you know, these other people that give uh, these these prophecies that are kind of vague and almost anyone can fulfill sometimes. Very specific for Jesus, uh, that he was going to be from the seed of Abraham and Judah and David. For Jesus, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. that um, That the temple would be destroyed after him. The kinds of miracles that he would do, he would heal blind and deaf and he would cause lame to leap. He would be rejected by his own people. Daniel 9, the precise year in history that the Messiah would die for the sins of the world. Psalm 22, that he would die by crucifixion. Isaiah 53, that he would be scourged and beaten. Psalm 16, that he would rise from the dead body before it would decay, that it would actually rise from the dead. All of these are prophecies in the Bible. So, I don't know. You know, I, I know that sometimes when people are really into something and you think they kind of geek over it, like I could geek over football or something. This is not just stuff to geek over. This is stuff to realize if I hold on to this and God's already proven that his word is true, then I could trust the God who wrote it. I could trust him for my eternal destination. I could trust him for my life. And then the last thing is the S, statistics. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. and, And this is where most of this material is from. The Bible, unlike other religious books, was not written by one author, but 40 authors. Okay, 40 different authors. And, and I, I subbed for my son Josiah's class on Friday um, over at Baymont School. It was, it was great. He's down in Anaheim for Acquire the Fire. It's a, a conference. So his Bible teacher called me and said, hey, would you, would you be willing to sub for me and teach uh, Bible class? Yeah, great. So I subbed. It was just a blast. And um, this is what I did with the the seventh and eighth grade students in Bible class and even sixth grade students. I said, uh, in this class, you're all about the same age. How many of you are 12? The vast majority of that class was 12. There were a couple of 13 year olds. So I said, you live in the same area, maybe not the same city, but you all live in Santa Cruz County, right? They all did. All lived in Santa Cruz County, same age. You all speak English, right? Yeah, we all speak English. You go to the same school, right? Yeah. I'm just going to give you one topic. How many of you believe that the death penalty is okay in instances where someone has done massive number of murders and the evidence is clear? How many of you believe the death penalty is right? You know, a bunch of them raised their hand. How many of you believe it's wrong? You know, a bunch of them raised their hand. So I said, I'm not gonna talk about that issue right now. I just wanted you to see that you're the same age. You speak the same language, live in the same county in the same country, and you can't even agree on this one thing. The Bible is written by 40 different authors. The 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New Testament, it took 1,500 years to write it. So some of these authors had never, they were 1,000 years apart, had never met each other, had never seen each other, didn't know each other. It covered 60 generations and it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So not just English, I mean, they all spoke English, but this is Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It was written on three continents, on Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written by um, authors from different walks of life. There were shepherds, a prime minister, a doctor, an accountant, farmers. Hundreds of controversial issues in total and complete harmony. Do you think the Bible is supernatural in origin? Do you think that the Bible is something that, man, when I read it, there's something special about this book that is different than any other book? And they're like, yeah, I, I see that. Because I want them at that age. Because I said, some, how many of you are gonna go to public high school? You know, a bunch of them raised. How many of you wanna go to a, you know, a university, you know, and not a Christian university necessarily? They raised their hand. I said, they're gonna bombard you with stuff like the Bible is full of myth. And the Bible is just, you know, it's an ancient book. I wanna arm you and equip you to know that, that it's something to hold on to. I think they came away strengthened. And I pray that we would as well. By the way, there's scientific knowledge. How long did uh, people think that the world was flat? <laughs> All the way up until Columbus, right? They were still afraid. No, no, you're gonna sail off the planet. Don't, don't go out there. You're gonna sail off the edge of the planet. You know, 1492, they're still worried about that. And yet when we read in the Bible that in Psalm 19.6, the Bible teaches that the sun travels in a circuit through space. And then in, in, in Isaiah, it talks about the shape of the earth being a sphere, Isaiah. This is hundreds of years before Christ, that the Bible is. A, I mean, the the Earth is a sphere. That we know that the we're not the center of the universe, but we revolve, and the sun. You know, is on an we're on an orbit around the sun. Uh, we know that before Isaac Newton discovered gravity, that um, the Greeks believed that Atlas carried the world on his back. You know, that he just he's this god that's carrying the world on his his back. It wasn't until science discovered in 1650 how the world, the earth is in suspension. But yet in Job 26, seven, it, it speaks of that, that it, it's being held in, in space by God, God holding it in, uh, in suspension. Um, real quickly, that people believed um, up until 1608, they believed that there were only 1,006 stars, 1,006 stars in the universe. You know Why? because that's how many they could count. You know, they, they could count the stars. And that's as far as we could see on a really dark night with a really good telescope. And it wasn't until like you get to this place now, in fact, Carl Sagan, who was not a believer by any means, but was an astronomer, he said that the number of, in 1963, when we started being able to see into deeper space, Carl Sagan said, the number of stars in the universe is more than the grains of sand on the beaches of the world. And with the Hubble telescope, guess what we're starting to find? That's what we're starting to find, that it's billions of galaxies. That's just crazy to me. I mean, it's just vast. And yet the Bible speaks of the stars of the sky, you know, being like the sand of the sea. Um, The authenticity of the Bible, last thing for statistics is this. The disciples' transparency, if the Bible were a fabrication, don't you think that the heroes would be painted in a better light? <laughs> These guys, if you're going to make something up and make them look good, you know, and the Bible just paints all of their faults and all of their failures and all of their doubts. Not only that, but think about how at 9/11, there were there were people that flew airplanes into buildings that died for something that they believed was true. They believed that they would be ushered into nirvana That there would be a bunch of virgins waiting for them. And that's what they believed. They believed it to be true. They were willing to give their life for that. And they were wrong. But would you give your life in a slow, painful death for something that you knew was a lie? All of the apostles were tortured and died brutal deaths. One of them was flayed with his skin being peeled off while he was alive until he died. Many of them were beheaded. Some of them were crucified upside down. One of them was crucified in a way that he just dehydrated and they just didn't give him any food. I mean, incredibly torturous ways to die. And if they would have just recanted and said it was a lie, I, I, I made it all up, we all made it up, they would have been set free. Now you can imagine someone dying for something that they believed was true, even if they were wrong, but you can't imagine someone dying a slow, painful death for something that they knew was a lie. There's nothing to gain from that. So when we read the Bible, the statistics, it just the authenticity, it shows us that God's word is, is just really God's word. And then I, I like I said, we're drinking out of a fire hydrant with a straw. Um, what I'm sharing with you is is more some background as disciples, because what I found as a Christian, when I when I first became a Christian, I, you know, I went to Calvin Chapel in West Covina, I was I was reading the Bible, studying the Bible. But you know, there were a lot of things that I didn't understand about how we got the Bible. And that background is something that a lot of Christians don't know why we believe what we believe. In fact, a lot of Christians are afraid of speaking up in a public sector in, in halls of academia because they're afraid that someone else will, will show that they're, you know, they're, they're uneducated. I just want to equip you and arm you so that, that when you read God's word, you, you trust in it. Now, um, lights and uh we're only going to get through half of the notes today um, l i g h t s lights how to read the bible just going to give you these and then next week we'll get a little bit more into it and and uh but the first thing is literal principle that's the l in lights is the bible true we just said yeah it is but is it literal like can you read when you read the bible is it literal is there a literal interpretation Because, believe it or not, what what we were praying earlier today was for chaplains of the military. Um, Just last week, the military chaplaincy had come out, or the military handing it down to the chaplaincy, that one Christian organization was an occult, um, not an occult, it was a a military, um, they called them a terrorist group. And uh, the terrorist group was just the American Family Association. And I don't know if you've ever followed the American Family Association. They're not terrorists. But the reason why they were considered terrorists is that they said that they believe that the Bible is literally, they take the Bible literally true as fundamentalists. So it's not far away where we're kind of labeled a little bit, right? So is the Bible literally true? Well, absolutely. But here's a principle when you're reading the Bible. This is how you read it. When you read the Bible literally, interpret the passage literally unless it's obviously a metaphor. Let me give you another uh, wor- uh, another sentence. If the simple sense makes sense, then seek no other sense. I think there are times that we take a literal thing and we try to over-spiritualize it. In fact, that's what Thomas Jefferson did. He took the Bible and he talked about like certain things and said, no, that's kind of metaphor. Um, We'll look at those metaphors later on. But but hey, make sure that you take the simple sense and seek no other sense. Just take the Bible for what it says. And we're gonna look at how you know at times that you're not to, or you're to look at it as a metaphor. Uh, The eye is illumination. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the Bible. The Holy Spirit will also teach us as we pray. God, help me to understand. Help me as I'm reading your word to know what this means. Help me to apply it. And you know what? There's a huge difference between reading it and reading it, asking the Holy Spirit to guide you. Isn't there if you've ever tried to read the Bible without doing that? So um, it doesn't mean that we're to forsake study. It doesn't mean that we're not to think about scholarship. But for those of us who have been born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, this verse applies. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says, The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God helps us to understand his word. The G is grammar. I think sometimes before we look up words in Greek or Hebrew, we need to understand some grammar in our own language. Um, Look for verbs. Those are action words. Look for nouns. Those are people, places, and things. And I highly suggest for study, for study, a word-for-word interpretation of the Bible. Um, I I read the NLT a lot for my devotional time. I love the flow of it. But when I'm studying and I'm studying to teach, Um, The New King James, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the NASB, New American Standard Version. Those are great study versions that are word-for-word interpretations by Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic scholars that just great translations. The H, look at the historical context. Um, Do you realize that every book in the Bible was written inspired by the Holy Spirit but through a human author? But that human author had a a target audience and there was an intent in writing. When I read 1 and 2 Timothy, guess what I'm doing? I'm reading someone else's mail, okay? Like Paul was writing this to Timothy. I, I had his mail, I'm reading someone else's mail. So I need to think if Paul is writing to Timothy, this was the original intention. Now there is application to me, but at the same time, remember the historical context. And then the T is types and metaphors as we said with the literal principle there are times when it's obvious that the language is metaphorical and symbolic when jesus said i am the bread of life what did he mean he's our nourishment our sustenance he didn't become bread you know he did not like hey jesus is a loaf check him out you know and and then jesus says i'm a door you know all of a sudden he becomes he's not like gumby and like transform into a door He's the way to the Father. He's the doorway. He's the entryway. So that's, that's metaphorical. And it, it totally makes sense when you're reading it. Obviously, he's not like, you know, he's not like a shapeshifter, you know, doing all these things. So when I read the Bible, I have to take the literal sense unless it's very clear and very obvious that this is a metaphor in what he's saying. And by the way, there are, there are literal things, for example, in the book of Revelation that many people take as metaphorical, which are literal. So, You've got to be careful, and there's a lot of study that takes place in that. Oh, by the way, when it comes to prophecy, one of the greatest evidences that the Bible is real is Israel. Just look at Israel as a nation. Um, all the things that they said before 1948 that were symbolic in the Old Testament, oh, that's symbolic, that's symbolic. It's a metaphor about Israel, and all of a sudden, in 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. Then 1967, Jerusalem is taken, all of a sudden they realize, oh, these prophecies in the Old Testament, they were literally true. So you got to know the historical context, the types and the metaphors. And then the S is scriptural context. Listen to this. Let scripture interpret scripture. If you read a scripture that doesn't seem to make sense, and it seems to go against the character of God, and it seems to go against the rest of what the Bible says, chances are you're misinterpreting that scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. So you're looking at the whole preponderance of the Bible and the context of it. Now, I do wanna close with this. I know this is weird. This is such a weird thing for me that like, is one, we're teaching about the Bible one of the few times that we haven't like opened up and like taken a passage and like done expository study through it and verse-by-verse study, and you're thinking, this is Calvary Chapel. We can't do this. You know, This is wrong. Well, I'm telling you, we're doing this so that when we do that verse-by-verse verse, that we know that what we're reading is true, and it's trustworthy, and we know that what we study is right on. Um, but for next week, I just want to preview this for you. We're going to look at understanding the Old and the New Testament and how they're put together, but but I just want to um, I I just want us to think we're not just to hear the word of God we're supposed to do it. Don't just be hearers but be doers. Be a self-feeder. Read the word of God for yourself, and after you read it, then apply it and and do it. In fact, at um, Gen 1, when I was teaching that, that uh, night that I was there, I was asking people how they grew in their faith. And one person said, when I actually took the Bible promises and took them as literally true and held on to those promises, that's what helped me to grow as a Christian. That's what helped me to grow as a believer. Next week, what we're going to look at is how the whole Bible, the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, it all speaks of Jesus this incredible thing. I just want you to 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 think about this as we go into this time of, of worship. God created this incredible world for us. It, the Bible is, is not a fictional thing. It's an account of, of something that really happened that, that almost seems too good to be true. Every story that we love, every every fictional story that we, we, we love, even as kids, there's a hero, there's a, a king, there's a prince. There's someone that needs to be saved. There, there's someone that goes into incredible difficulty and danger, someone that risks life. I believe that God put all of those things in us because we are created in the image of God and it all points to him. When we have this incredible sense of good versus evil and injustice and we read a story or we hear something in real life that isn't right and our blood just starts to boil like how is that person getting away with it then when i read in the word of god i realize that there's wrath of god there's judgment of god but sometimes i'm the jerk right and sometimes i'm the one that deserves wrath and judgment and then i read the word of god and i realize that there's love and there's mercy and that god is going through any lengths to reach out to us the whole bible is an incredible story of god's redemptive grace it's a story of creation. Why did he create trees? Yeah, I was just with my daughter at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and we're looking at the little sea anemones through, it was closing time and we're just looking through one of these magnifying glasses and we're just checking things out and there's no one else there. And I'm going, Ellie, look at all the colors. You know, look at, there's pink and why didn't God just create all white or all black or just gray? It's vibrant and no one, these are new discoveries. They're at the very bottom of the ocean and we don't see it. Why did God do that? Because he's a creative God. He loves beauty. Why do we love love stories? Because God created us to desire love. You know, people that want to be rich, why do they want to be rich? To have a bunch of stuff? Why do they want a bunch of stuff? To share it, to do it. No one wants a mansion and a boat and, and, and a bungee jumping and, and all these things by themselves without anyone seeing and anyone sh- God created us for connectivity, for community. The whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is this. It's all about Jesus. That's why when you look at the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is walking with the two disciples, he's telling them these things. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he explained that these things were testifying of him? Just an amazing, amazing thing. And so, man, next week, uh, please come with your thinking caps on. Come uh, ready to write. Because we are going to look at Genesis, you know, the creation, fall, flood. We're going to look at the monarchy. How did the prophets, where did they write? Did you realize that most of the books of the prophets happened during the time of 2 Kings? So if you want to make sense out of like Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these books, then you realize the context in which it was written during this time period. Man, we're going to look at all of those things because as disciples, um, if God's word is so important that people have died to bring us God's word. Um, in, in India, Gospel for Asia, when uh, in fact, Pastor Bill has been there and Pastor Johnny, have you been to India? No, his son, Pastor Dave's been to India. But when you, you go there, this is, they're, they're waiting for you. They're, they're waiting for you because they don't have anyone to, to teach, they don't have a, a seminary in this little town. So you come and what do you do? You teach them. You know what you teach them? You teach them a whole book. Teach us the book of Isaiah. Then Jeremiah. Could you teach us Revelation? Could you teach us Genesis? Could you teach us First and Second Timothy? And then 12 hours of teaching in 100 degree weather, 90% humidity, and, and the teacher is just fainting. And these guys are just saying, could you just stay awake a little bit longer and give us more? Man, I pray that God whets our appetite for the things of God because he loves us and he wants to speak to us. Let's let's pray and uh, we'll have the worship team come up. And as we worship, like I said before, um, you know, when it comes to worship, God, uh, it, it's not just about Sunday mornings. It's about our whole life. We're gonna sing these songs because God is good and he's worthy to be praised. Um, if you're a, a visitor, then, then welcome. You're not expected to give, but if your heart is to give, Um, as an act of obedience and tithes and offerings that's an act of worship as well and so as we pray and worship the lord we'll have an opportunity to do that and we're going to pray for the offering also lord this morning um, it doesn't feel to me like a typical sunday morning in some ways father um maybe a little bit more like a classroom but but lord i i do pray that your Holy Spirit supernaturally would take your word as it says that um, it's living and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it, it cuts going in and it cuts coming out and it divides to our thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, that you would take your word in our lives this week and you would do the cutting process. God, that you would cut away the things in our lives that that really are are wasteful, things that aren't helpful, things that are are sinful and and i pray that as we read your word that you would strengthen us i pray that as we read your word that you would um illuminate our our understanding by your holy spirit and if there's anyone here today lord that has never received christ as their lord and savior i pray that today would be that day of salvation that that when they open up their heart to you and they they trust in you that God, as you fill them with your spirit, that when they read the Bible, all of a sudden the same things they were reading become clear. Things that were confusing, Lord, um, give life. And so Lord, take your word this week in our lives and and use it. And then Father, as uh, we worship you in singing and with tithes and offerings, we pray that you'd receive these tithes and offerings today as acts of worship unto you. Bless it, Lord, multiply it, use it.